church directory. If your face is in the church directory at the moment, I don't think it's anybody there. Um, but Leona wants, the church administrator, wants to, to make sure that we have that tidied up. So from next week, for a number of weeks, there'll be an, an enlarged copy of the directory out there. I suppose in the evening service, it might be down the back or along onto the side there. And what we would like is for everyone to go along, check your photo, check that you look okay. If you don't, there'll be an opportunity, hopefully, to get some more photos, because some of them are pretty dodgy. And then... Just check the details, right address, right phone number, all of that type of stuff. If it's wrong, change it. And then at the bottom of the form, there'll be a place for you to sign. And the deal is that if you don't go check the directory and sign saying you've checked it, then your name's going to be taken out as if you're saying, I don't want it to be there anymore. So I'd encourage you over the next couple of weeks, not tonight because it ain't there, but be planning next week to go and to check and to check that. Is that fair enough? Okay. Let's just pray and ask God's blessing as we come and look at this passage from Obadiah and, and just to see what it has to say to us. Let's pray. Father God, as we come now and we have a look at this passage that speaks not only to your people Israel, not only to the people of Eden, but by your spirit you have given it that we might learn, that we might be encouraged, that we might be exhorted. And we pray that we might learn from it this evening in ways that might be good for your kingdom's sake. Father, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This is the third in the series that we've been doing on Obadiah. The first one uh, we did almost a month ago was looking at just a general overview of Obadiah. So I'm not going to do that now, but if you'd like to go back, read Obadiah, look at the history behind um, Edom and Israel, two nations which came up from two brothers from Jacob and from Esau, and the enmity that kept going throughout history between these two families as they just couldn't get on with each other. And, and why it was that when Edom didn't care for Israel, that God brought judgment upon them, which is a little bit of the topic that we're discussing today. Again, almost a month ago, we looked at the first nine verses where the prophet Obadiah shares with the nation of Edom that God is going to bring judgment upon them. Judgment upon them because of the pride of their heart. If you like, this is a, a general declaration of what they've done wrong. They have shown pride. And we looked at, at that time, the various ways that they evidenced that pride, where, where they trusted in things other than God, they trusted in themselves, and they asked the question, who can bring us down? Like, we're here, no one can touch us. And God said, I can bring you down. And, and we just had a look at that and the implications that it was for us as to what it is to, to hold ourselves apart from God and think that our security is in anything else except for him. In these verses 10 to 14, in many ways, the, the, the charge that is against them is, is focused in on. In, in the prophets in the Old Testament, often what they used to do is they would give the judgment. They would say, this is what God's going to do. And that's happened in Obadiah. God's going to destroy them. Then there was the charge made against them. You have pride in your heart. You, have, you put your trust in things other than God. And then what used to come was evidence. Evidence to support, if you like, that charge. And what we have in these verses 
is some of the evidence where God says, this is what I have against you. This is evidence of your pride, or this is evidence against which I'm going to bring the judgment. And um, so we want to have a look at these verses tonight. Interestingly, John MacArthur, a well-known Bible teacher and exegete, he says this, he says, more than any other nation mentioned in the Old Testament, Edom is the supreme object of God's wrath. More than any other nation in the Old Testament, Edom is the supreme object of God's wrath. In other words, we see on Edom God's wrath put out in such a way greater than it was for all the other nations. And so it's important for us to look at what is it that God has against this nation which is so heinous that he not only threatens but enacts against them a judgment where they are wiped out. The land is taken from them and they no longer exist as a nation. So what specifically is the nation guilty of? Let's look at the passage. Verse 10. If you like, the, the crime here that uh, God has against this nation is, is described in fairly general terms in verse 10. And then in verses 11, 12, 13, and 14, it's, it's described in a, in a little bit more of a specific way. But let's have a look at what this general crime is. He says this, verse 10. Because of the violence against your brother Jacob, you will be covered with shame. You will be destroyed forever. You'll be brought out of your pride and covered with shame. Not only that, you'll be taken from the place where you think you're secure and you will be destroyed. Why? Because of the violence against your brother Jacob. Now, as we look at this, we have to recognize that any sin brings upon us or the person, peoples, nations, families who, who do the sin, the wrath of God. And, and here we have the fact that, you know, if we think about it, violence against anyone is sin. So that God is right when he just, if he had just said, because of your violence, you will be destroyed, that we would understand violence is sin. To act towards somebody in anger and hatred where you hurt them is a wrong thing to do. But then he talks about the fact that it's violence against Jacob. It's against, if you like, God's chosen people. In many ways, this is not just violence against these guys. This is violence against the ones whom God has chosen. So, for example, in Genesis chapter 12, when God is speaking to Abraham, he says this, And the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. And then he says, I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse, and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Now, that was a number of generations before Jacob and Edom were born. Esau were born. But Isaac, their father, when he's blessing Jacob, he says this in Genesis chapter 27, verse 29, specifically about Jacob. May nations serve you and peoples bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers, and may the sons of your mother bow down to you. And then he goes on to say, May those who curse you be cursed, and those who bless you be blessed. Not only was it violence against the people, but it was a violence against God's chosen people, and if you like, God's chosen will. 
This was a sin against those whom God had set apart. And so there's another reason why this crime that Edom did was especially bad. No, not especially bad, but it incurred the wrath. It showed God, it showed something that God hates so much. Anything that, that your kids do wrong that, that is a sin, you, you want them to change. You want them to learn from it. You want them to grow out of that to live holiness. But there are some things that just get under your skin. And this thing just... All sin is, is wrong, but whatever it is that Esau did, that Edom did, just feel like God under God's skin. And I think it's not just that it was violence against people, hatred. And it wasn't just against God's chosen ones, but in two of the places, in fact, through the passage and in, in, in through the Old Testament, we understand Jacob and Edom, Israel and Edom, Jacob and Esau, were brothers. Because of the violence against your brother Jacob, you will be covered with shame. In verse 12, you should not gloat over your brother in the day of his misfortune. And if you like, it's violence against the brother, against family. That God says, shows the way in which these people had sinned against him. They had not taken into account that relationship. If you read in Deuteronomy chapter 23, God, in speaking to his people Israel, says to them, do not despise an Edomite. Don't despise those people from that other nation, for the Edomites are your brothers. In other words, in God's expectation, family relationships hold a special place. James Boyce, who's, who's a, a famous, actually, he's written a whole lot of commentaries on passages. He describes this attitude that Edom showed as unbrotherliness. And we all think to ourselves, well, that's not so bad, right? It doesn't sound that bad. I mean, murder's worse than unbrotherliness. We're all unbrotherly at times. It's not that big a deal. But the Western world is probably one of the, the first groups of people where this hasn't been in our social consciousness something that is bad. We just see it as not good. In ancient times and in many other cultures, this understanding that I treat my family wrong is a heinous sin. And we, we read in the scriptures here that God also holds family as exceptionally important. All right, let's move on. Verses 11, 12, 13, and 14. The crime is now described, if you like, in more specific details. Verse 11. On the day you stood aloof while strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. What was this? What were they doing? It wasn't the fact that they at this time were actually attacking Israel, but someone else was attacking Israel. And we talked about this in, in, the, in the introduction. There are two possible times that it could be. One of them is in the time of Jehoram, who was the son of Jehoshaphat. That's back in you know, 800 and something BC. 
And it talks about then the fact that Edom was in rebellion against Israel and this other group of people came and attacked Israel. Most likely, I think, that's the time that it's talking about. Because it doesn't talk about the destruction of the temple or any other sorts of things. So it's talking about when that happened, these other two, the Arabs and the Philistines, came and attacked Israel and Edom stood by and watched. They looked. And what did they do? They did nothing. They acted, as it says, like you were one of them. Other people entered in and you didn't think, they're attacking my brother. You saw yourself as distant from them. You stood aloof. What happens to that person doesn't affect me. I'm not impacted by this. I can just stand over here and watch. If you like what it's accusing them of, of doing nothing. It's as if they didn't see what was happening. They just let it go on. And God condemns them for that. If you like, in many ways, it's an attitude of their minds. They have distanced themselves from being impacted by the hurt that is happening to their brother, to this nation that was supposed to be close to them. And they stood apart from it and they did absolutely nothing. It then goes on and shows that their crime, if you like, progresses to be even worse than that. Verse 12. You should not gloat over your brother in the day of his misfortune, nor rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their destruction, nor boast so much in the day of their trouble. What did they do now? It's not just that they did nothing. But they began, if you like, to delight in what was happening over there. Now, we kind of think that doesn't make much sense, but the use of the words that are here um, in, in their meaning just gives us a little bit more of a closer picture to what this is. The word that is translated gloat actually means to see. You should not see your brother. But it's often used in one of two ways. It either means to look over, to see over them, which is our idea of gloating, looking above them. But I think possibly a better translation is, is the one that is to look into, to see into, to, if you like, it's this idea of a sinful curiosity. They're standing back at a distance here. They're, they're still aloof. They haven't entered into the fray, but they're curious as to what's going on. They Google it. And as they Google it, they Google some more because it's interesting. Aren't chemical weapons interesting? Don't you wonder how they can possibly be given to a whole group of people? And what happens when someone puts a military strike against someone else? Let's have a look at this. Let's, let's inquire about it. Let's have this curiosity. What does it do? It... It gets us interested. It gets us excited. And this is God's condemnation of them. Something bad is happening to your brother. And what do you do? You either stand aloof and say, it doesn't impact me. Or you begin to rejoice, delight in what's happening. You get this curiosity to have a look at their misfortune and to examine it. And uh, does that make sense? 
just look at the media and the world around us at how people do that. Bad stuff happens. Just look at any news item. It's all bad or sinful. And what do we do? We click on it. I looked at 9MSN or one of those other silly things this afternoon. Polish woman wants to sleep with 100,000 men. Why do I need to know that? And why would people go and click on that and have a read about it? Because it interests them, it delights them, it titillates their fancy. They don't want to do that, but they want to read about it. And God says, you should not gloat. You should not look into your brother in the day of his misfortune. Don't let it be something that brings you delight. Nor rejoice over the people of Judah in their destruction. Don't celebrate what happens to them. They deserve that, don't they? I remember being talking with a couple of my friends when um, shock and awe, was that what it was called? Happened. You know, the bombardment of Iraq. And just the smiles on the faces in the room as this bombardment happened against these people because they deserve it. People being blown up, lives being lost. But it, it's right. And there's this delight and rejoicing in it. Now, we're going to get later on to applications, so don't think we're immune from this. As we see things happen to people and we rejoice that it happens because they deserve it. Or rejoice that it happens because they're bad people. Or rejoice that it happens because that will teach them. And then he says, nor boast so much in the day of their trouble. And the word boast here means to make your mouth large. <laughs> yeah. Ah, we're better than they are. They deserve that, don't they? And if you think about it, as you read stuff and bad stuff happening, and even in the politics, this person's poll goes up there, you well, that makes sense. You should have heard the stuff they said. We would never say stuff like that. That's the beginning of this boasting. What happens to them, I take pride in. It's their misfortune, but it lifts me up. And so we have this progression from standing apart from someone else's misfortune, someone who's your brother, to not standing apart from it, but to watching it and saying, yep, I'm interested in that. And I benefit somehow from that. And God says, no, don't, you shouldn't do that. Your judgment is coming upon you because of this violence against your brother Jacob. Note the violence that he's talking about here refers to both of these first two steps as well. The imaginations of our minds and the attitudes of our heart is considered violence against them. You don't have to get your hands dirty to be violent. Jesus said the same thing. You just have to look at a woman in lust and it's like you're committing adultery with her. That's where it starts. Verse 13. You should not march through the gates of my people in the day of their disaster nor gloat over them in their calamity in the day of their disaster, nor seize their wealth in the day of their disaster. Here we have the next progression. They still weren't doing anything, but what was happening was they were benefiting, if you like, from the calamity. They moved closer to what was happening. And here the word gloat is still looking into, but it's now not from a distance. 
It's now from up close. And it's, it's if you like, peering and imagining, what can I get out of this? What's going to be my benefit from their misfortune? If that person suffers, then maybe I can stand into this situation. If their relationship there is broken, maybe the power struggle is going to come up. There's all sorts of different ways that as we look into other people's misfortune, we benefit from it. If that country goes down, then we'll get this, or their alliances will change. They gloat. They look around for what they can get. If you like, it then goes on to talk about the fact that they loot after the fact. They haven't done it, but seize their wealth in the day of their disaster. You go behind and pick up the pieces to see what you can get from it. You loot. You haven't done the violence. No one's there to stop you, so you go in behind and you go through and pick up the pickings. And God says of Edom, he says, you stood aloof from them and you did nothing. Then you got really interested in it to see how you might benefit from it, from looking from afar. You got interested. You had this sinful curiosity about what was going on. And then you went even closer and you, you picked over what was left. Instead of helping, you benefited from it. Verse 14, you should not wait at the crossroads to cut down their fugitives nor hand over their survivors in the day of trouble. They went that next step. They participated in what was going on. They participated in the destruction of their brother. As their brothers fled, as the families fled, they put the barricades up and stopped them. They captured them and handed them over to those who were going to persecute them. They didn't provide them with an escape. They didn't provide them with protection. Instead, they handed them over to be hurt. And this is God's condemnation against these people. Any one of those things, whether it's against a brother or against someone else, is sin. And done against God's people, it's a heinous sin. But to be done against a family member, God says in this passage, is sheer wickedness. And that's why John MacArthur says, more than any other nation mentioned in the Old Testament, Edom is the supreme object of God's wrath. It's like your house gets robbed. And your family's tied up. Guns held at your head. And this other gang of people come in and steal from your house and the mask comes off and you find it's your brothers and sisters who are stealing from you. That's just wrong. So what do we learn from all of this? What's the application for us? Romans chapter 15 says, For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us, so that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. In other words, that is taught that we might learn that our reactions and our behavior and our attitudes will be better than that. We'll learn from it. So let's have a quick look through this. Number one, God takes family relationships seriously. If you like, boys would put it this way, God takes blood relationships seriously. 
brothers, sisters, fathers, mothers, um, uncles, aunts, grandparents, children. We live in a society where unbrotherliness, as he says, is not really such a great problem. But here, God says this is the evidence. This is, if you like, the ultimate proof of their pride. The fact that they would treat their family badly is evidence that their pride is against God. They have lifted themselves up too far, that they're no longer a part of a community, that they're now an individual separate from their family. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 8, it's in that passage that talks about caring for widows. Paul says this, Anyone who does not provide for their relatives, and especially for their own household, has denied the faith. But he goes even further than that. He doesn't just say, you're acting like someone who doesn't even know Jesus here. He's saying, and is worse than an unbeliever. That caring for your family, looking after your relatives, your brothers, your sisters, your mother, your father, your children, if you don't do that, you're not as bad as an unbeliever, you're worse than an unbeliever, because even unbelievers know that they're a part of a community and part of a family. And for a Christian not to do that, but as we get to the, as we get to the as Christians, it should just be a natural part, if you like, a showing that we're followers of Jesus, that we care for that part of our community. If we don't do it, there's a problem. If if we allow bitterness, rivalry, jealousy, je- jealousy, unforgiveness to come into our relationships, and we don't deal with those things, and out of that melting pot, we ignore and treat as if they're not. Or we have a look at what's happening to them and take pleasure from it. Or we begin to participate in it. Then we're worse than the unbelievers. How does this work out in practice? Honour your father and mother. Honour your parents. Discipline your kids. Look after them, but don't exasperate them. Young kids, obey your parents. It's not just a sin, although it is a sin. We have outlined here, this is something God finds offensive. The first commandment with a promise is to honour your father and mother, that it may go well with you in the land. That family unit which God has created is the one that is supposed to be the support and the mainstay. Some of you, your parents are getting older. What are you going to do? How are you going to look after that? That's a responsibility you have to think about. Parents, your kids are estranged. You've got a responsibility. You can't just wipe your hands off them, even if you want to. Responsibility is to love, to bring, to show respect to, to bring them back, to work with them. Husbands and wives, we, we live in a world where you, can, where you, you become a part of a new family and, and it just breaks up, it's easy. You think we can split this up and get a new one. Do you care for that? Your husband, your wife, care for your kids. Do you care for your brothers and sisters? 
your siblings? Or do you think they're just a pain in the neck or somewhere else? And you wish you didn't have to deal with them. And when they get in trouble, you kind of have a little spark. <laughs> they deserve it. Do we stand apart from their suffering, the difficulties that they're going through? And I think we learn from this that God finds family exceptionally important. And if we don't care for and be reconciled with and look for and towards our family with the attitude of caring and not standing apart from them, then God does not like it and he will deal with it. Second application for us, and we find this particularly in the New Testament, is that no long, not only are we part of a birth family born in this world, but we're also part of a new family by our new birth. Born of water and born of the Spirit, we are now brought into a family which is called the church. And John says in, in his letter that how do you know that someone is a member of God's family who's a follower of Jesus by the love that the people in that family have one for another? That love that Christians have for one another is, is a sign to the world that we're followers of Jesus. The same implications are true here for our natural birth families as they are for our church family. When things go wrong with someone in the church, do we stand aloof from it? Or is their pain our pain? Is their joy our joy? Do we care for one another? Or do we not associate? We don't even actually see it, if you like. Do we look into what happens in those places? And when something goes wrong or they suffer or they fail, they propose this new ministry and we're against it and it crashes and burns. I told them that wasn't going to work. Someone tries something and it doesn't go well. You think, yep, if I'd done that, it wouldn't have worked out like that. I told them it wouldn't happen. I'm not getting involved. I'm not participating. If we begin to be respond like that with brothers and sisters in our Christian family, then God says the similar things in the New Testament about us, that we don't evidence the life of Christ in our hearts and our minds. Thirdly, and again, this is in the teaching of Christ, and it's a bit of, not a bit of a push, but it's a little bit off the topic a little bit. We are part of a much broader community family in, 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 in a relationship that we have with the whole world. These very same things are applicable as we look at what happens outside of the church, outside of our close families. The same attitudes when we can separate ourselves from the suffering that happens to other people and say, it's not something that impacts me, is violence against those people. And when we Google or Bing, I'm not sure which, which people use the most, I still think it's Google, then, and we just want to keep investigating what the misfortunes of others, the sins of others, and it takes up our time. It's a violence against them because we are rejoicing in their suffering. 
We want to benefit from what goes wrong somewhere in the world, somewhere in our nation, and we benefit from that and we take pleasure from that. It's violence against those people. We have to be very, very careful. This is saying we're not to be like that. So lastly, what do we do with this? If you read through verses 11, 12, 13, 14, the... It's well, particularly 12, 13, 14, it says you should not. You should not. You should not. Or don't. It's a condemnation against them, but if you like, there's another period. We talked about this time in Jehoram, son of Jehoshaphat, back in the 800s BC. And I think this is when Obadiah is talked about. There's another time when they stood back. It's in the time of their dis- when the, the southern kingdom was taken away to Babylon in the 500s BC. Early 500s BC. And Edom again stood back. They had this opportunity to learn. Even though this document was, was about them, it was part of the Jewish writings, for, for the, and we'll get to this in the next few weeks, God was saying to Israel, I haven't forgotten you. Though they have, I haven't. But Edom didn't learn. Psalm 137 is written after the destruction of Jerusalem and all the people taken off to Babylon. And the writer says this, let me read it to you. He says, By the rivers of Babylon we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. There on the poplars we hung our harps, for there our captors asked us for songs. Our tormentors demanded songs of joy. They said, sing us one of the songs of Zion. They were slaves. They were brought into Babylon, and their captors said, entertain us. Entertain us about your home, all the things that you've lost. Let us take pleasure in it. The psalmist goes on in verse 4. How can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? How can we sing the Psalms when we're stuck here? If I forget you, Jerusalem, may my right hand forget its skill. May my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you, if I do not consider Jerusalem my highest joy. And then they say this, Remember, Lord, what the Edomites did on the day Jerusalem fell. Tear it down, they cried. Tear it down to its foundations. What are they saying? Edom did the same thing again. They didn't learn. They stood aloof again. They didn't participate, but they're egging them on. Tear it down, tear it down. Get rid of them. We don't want them around here. And then the psalmist says, verse 8, Daughter Babylon, doomed to destruction. God is going to pay you back for what you've done to us. You're doomed. But happy is the one who repays you according to what you have done to us. Happy is the one who seizes your infants, this is about Edom, and dashes them against the rocks. Blessed is the one who enacts the curse of God against Edom. Now that sounds very, very harsh to us, and it is. We're not going to go through an exegesis of this passage at the moment. But what these people are saying, Edom didn't learn its lesson. They did the same thing in that day, hundreds of years later, than they had in the time beforehand. And after that period of time, Edom was no more. They became Idumeans in the time of Christ, and then they were wiped out in AD 70. Not to be heard of again. 
I don't know about you, but if I look at my own life, I have to look at my relationships with my blood relatives, my family. How is that? What do I learn from this about how I should treat them? How do, how do I treat the church? And I encourage you to do the same. How do I treat my brothers and sisters in the church? And how do I think about the world out there? Because if we don't learn from this, and if our actions towards our siblings, our parents, our children, our family, doesn't change because we're followers of Jesus Christ, then it's evidence that we're actually worse than unbelievers. It should be different. If Christ has come into our hearts and saved us and brought us to himself, welcomed us into his family, calls us his brother or sister, makes us joint heirs with him of all that God has, and we don't extend that same to our family in smaller measure, do we really understand this? I think is an application we could take away. And the same as it is with our relationship with the church, and in many ways the love that we do or don't show to everyone. I encourage you to think on these things. Let's pray. Lord God, Lamb of God, you take away the sin of the world. Have mercy on us. If we think through the relationships that we have with people, with our family, maybe they've wronged us in terrible ways. Help us to think with Christ-like minds renewed by your spirit, empowered by your spirit, instructed by your word, that our relationships with our families, our relationships with our brothers and sisters in Christ, and even the way that we just deal with the world that's out there, might be done in such a way that you look on us and you are pleased because we are not violent towards them by either our attitudes or our actions. And Father, I ask these things in the, your most, the most holy name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.